You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's sermon is preached by Nate Penley. morning. <clears throat> I am grateful to be here, to be able to bring the word to you this morning in Scott's absence. And uh, we are grateful that he has some time off. We're, I've been able to keep touch with him a little bit this week, and he's having a good time at his conference. And now this week he's going to spend some time on vacation with his family. But uh, we're grateful that he can spend some time. We'll continue to keep him in prayer. So this morning, I'm going to continue on in our series here in First Timothy, or I'm sorry, Second Timothy, and we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to cover verses 14 through 19. So as you're turning there, I am very grateful that uh, I get the opportunity here to bring the word to you this morning. And uh, it's certainly, I think, a new skill set that I'm learning, getting up in front of people and talking. But I'm grateful for this opportunity, and I hope that this is an uh, encouraging time as we look to God's word together. So why don't we go ahead and start... 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Paul thinks that part of Timothy's job is refreshing the memory of his flock. The first question that is begged is, what are these things that are so important that they must be reminded of them? Well, the most logical answer would be in reference to what Paul has just written to them. Paul has just written two and a half chapters of content that should clue us in as to what he's referring to. So let's take a minute to review. In the first chapter... After Paul's initial greeting to Timothy, he reminds Timothy of the gospel that he preached to him. He reminds Timothy in the second half of verse, verse 8, which says, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher. Here we see Paul referencing himself as an authority for teaching the gospel, which he certainly would have given to Timothy. In verse 13, we see another reference to Paul's gospel when he says to Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
Skipping on to chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, And what have you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men? Continuing to verse 8 of chapter 2, Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And then skipping to verse 10, it says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is clear that the gospel is clearly the foundation for what Paul is addressing in this letter, and it's clear that the gospel is central to Paul's command in verse 14 of chapter 2. Timothy is to remind them of the gospel. The gospel is to be the foundation for their hope. It is the very reason for their hope, and it is something that we need to be reminded of on a regular basis. Remind them is Paul's initial command to Timothy in this passage. Why does Timothy's flock need reminding? Haven't we already been told what we need to know? Isn't it now time to go and do? I mean, come on, Paul. You've already given us the gospel. Why do we need to hear it again and again and again? Isn't once enough? Well, the answer to this question lies in our understanding of anthropology. It's a fancy word for the study of the nature of man. And it is the key to understanding our need for reminders. All we need to do is turn to the book of Exodus, where men witnessed firsthand some of the greatest displays of God's power over creation. Men saw with their own eyes how God turned water into blood. He brought frogs and bugs of various kinds to wreak havoc on the nation. They saw plagues, darkness engulf them, and finally the payment for their hardness of heart was ultimately death. And God did all this to display his power and his love for his people. And even after this magnificent display, God gave them songs and altars to his chosen people to remind them of what he had done. And yet, it doesn't even take into the second generation for them to forget. These very people that witnessed with their own eyes the magnificent display of God's power, they managed to forget that God's power is limitless. They forgot that God could be trusted to provide for every need they had. They forgot that his love for them was exponentially more than they deserved. They were ready to give up on the God that has power over the universe and return to the gods of Egypt, the gods that barely had power to make wooden rods into snakes. Yeah, those gods. And are we any different? Are our memories any better? Obviously, the state that was true of mankind during the times of the Exodus hasn't changed for mankind today. We, like all mankind, are by nature children of wrath. We know this from Ephesians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 3, which says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is our nature. This is what we're born into. Our nature is no different than that of the Israelites. And we are just as forgetful as they are. And we also have overwhelming evidence of God's power displayed throughout all of creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. God has revealed himself in this creation to us. He has revealed himself through his apostles and his prophets. And as the introduction to Hebrews states, God has ultimately revealed himself to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 1-4 states, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Why are these verses so important? Because scripture is clear that we have been able to see the lasting results of what God has done throughout all the universe, of what, God, of what happens when the God of the universe comes down in humility and obedience to his heavenly Father and redeems a people for himself by paying our debt that we could not repay. We have seen how Christ has fulfilled his promise to his disciples to build his church. 2,000 years and running strong is a testimony of God's faithfulness to his church, and yet we still make up reasons to suppress the truth and run back to our puny gods. And our gods can't even turn wooden sticks into snakes. Yes, we absolutely need to be reminded of the gospel. Just like we are dependent on oxygen to breathe, we are dependent on the gospel. Not just to be brought to life, but also to maintain life. As extremely forgetful people, we must be reminded of our sinful states. We must be reminded of our need for a savior. We need to be reminded of Jesus' glorious work of redemption. We need to be reminded of his work of paying for the sins of his children through the atoning death of, his, of Jesus on the cross and of his victory over death through his resurrection. We need to be reminded of our need to put our faith in the only one who has the power to save us and we need to be reminded of our need to repent of the sins that Christ has died for because we are forgetful people. Let us never cease to remind each other of the gospel. Let it be the lifeblood that is the foundation for all that we do. Like oxygen, let it be what gives life and sustains us. There's no doubt that the gospel that Paul has mentioned throughout this letter up to this point is what is to be our foundation. But Paul has also mentioned the importance of understanding the gospel in the context of suffering. It is especially important that during times of suffering, which we know Paul is clearly suffering for the gospel, we know it's important that we be reminded of these gospel truths in which the very character of God is displayed. We saw last week in our passage that God is faithful, that his character is unchanging. And because of his unchanging character, we can trust him to remain true to his promises. And so it is during times of suffering we must remember these truths. Our muscle memory must be informed by these truths. And the only way to train our muscle memory is to exercise those muscles. We must preach these truths to ourselves. We must remind ourselves of the very character of God, of his promises, and of his plan. Then, when trials come, we'll be prepared to respond. Our muscle memory will take over and we'll have a chance to persevere. Timothy has been charged to remind his flock of biblical truths that were handed down to him through the apostles and the prophets. And then he is charged to instruct his flock to not quarrel about words. This word that is translated into quarrel about words is actually a compound verb that is literally translated as word war, or you could say word fight. The idea here being that you are to avoid going around fighting with your words. This does not mean that we are not to correct false teaching, as we will see in a moment, and as well as we look into next week's passage. Um, but we are most certainly charged with defending the faith and with correcting false teaching as it arises in the church. But how we do this is also very important. We are not supposed to war like the world does. 
The goal of war is to destroy. But our goal should not be like that of the world. The reason that we don't war over our words is because war is destructive. Just like real war, not only are the two sides that are doing battle going to be harmed, but there's also collateral damage. And as we see here in this text, that when we go to war over our words, there is collateral damage that takes place. Paul says that the hearers are ruined. If Timothy is to care for his flock, he is not to be spending his time quarreling with others. This would be a fool's errand. And yet, this warning needs to be said. Because this is always a great temptation for anyone that has been handed the one and only standard of truth. And what often starts out as a defense for the faith can so quickly descend into a battle of pride between individuals. How often has loving correction morphed into a chance to tear down and destroy? How easy is it for us to give in to our tongue's desire to set fires and watch them burn? And can you think of a better place where this is more prominently displayed than social media today? If there ever was a place that was more fertile ground for word warring than social media, I haven't been able to find it. One of the problems, I believe, with the platform itself is that it removes the flesh and bone, face-to-face -face element of human interaction. When we communicate face-to-face, -face, uh, when we communicate face-to-face, -face, we have to live with the results of our words in real-time fashion. When we drop word bombs, and we have to see the destruction in real time on other people's faces, and it usually causes us to think twice about what we say. But before I run too far down the rabbit trail of my personal feelings on social media, I'll say that even before social media existed, mankind has had a communication problem. And Paul's charge here is to avoid warring. Because words certainly have the power to cause tremendous damage. And our temptation is to chase down every talking point, or to win every argument to chase down every wrong opinion, or to get bogged down calling out every false teacher. And then we often justify our use of deadly force with our words because, well, our cause is just, isn't it? These people must be destroyed, we might say. But this cannot be what characterizes the children of God. Now, this is not to say that we are not to correct false teaching or that sharp or strong language is never allowed. We see countless examples of sharp rebuke by the prophets, the apostles, and even Jesus himself. The prophet Elijah mocks the god of the prophets of Baal by asking them if their god is on the john, relieving himself. The apostle Paul tells Titus that he is to rebuke the Cretans sharply. Paul also rebukes the church of Galatia sharply, flat out by calling them fools. And later in that same letter, when addressed the false teachers of the circumcision party, that were perverting the gospel, he says that while performing their circumcisions, he wishes they would just cut the whole thing off. Jesus calls the Pharisees sons of serpents in whitewashed tombs. So we can see at the very least that there are cases in which sharp language is permissible, and I would even argue it's necessary at times. However, what should overwhelmingly characterize the children of God should not be a spirit that seeks out controversy or one that thrives on fighting. Rather, Paul charges Timothy to spend his time constructively as a worker. A worker that is to be approved by God. Instead of being characterized as a quarreler or a destroyer, Paul urges Timothy to strive to be a worker or a builder. Paul rightly understands the limited human nature of Timothy, and so his charge is to do his best, perfection being something that, that will not be attained until final glorification, but as children of God, we should be characterized as workers of our Heavenly Father. And as children of God, even in the context of suffering, 
we have no need for shame. Paul is literally imprisoned for the cause of Christ, and the temptation then would be to feel shame over this. Just as criminals who have broken the law by stealing or cheating and then caught by the authorities, those criminals are then punished publicly and brought low to be shamed for their violations. It would be easy to see Paul, who is suffering, and others that are suffering, being punished like common criminals and to think that there is need for shame. But Paul encourages Timothy not to give in to public peer pressure. Timothy does not need to feel shame for his imprisonment. Unlike the common criminals that deserve their punishment and promote injustice, those that are being punished for working for Jesus should feel no shame. There is no greater honor than to commit one's life to the service of the king. And if the state tries to make it a crime to be faithful to Christ, then there is no reason for shame. In fact, as we saw when we went through First and Second Peter, those that suffer for righteousness' sake will be blessed. James tells us to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So there is no need for shame if we have faith in Christ, because Christ will deliver on his promises. Paul then tells Timothy what the standard is by which Timothy is to measure himself. Since Timothy should be in the pursuit of presenting himself to God as a worker, then he needs to know the standard by which he should measure himself. Paul calls this standard the word of truth. And it is the job of Timothy to handle this word rightly. The idea here is that God's word is like a straight path. And it is the job of Timothy to guide people along this path as straightly as possible. This is not something that we should handle sloppily, just as it would be dangerous to handle a steering wheel of your car sloppily, you would be a fool to handle the word of God sloppily. It must be handled with precision. Throughout the years of God's progressive revelation, we have seen that there are many names for the written word of God. In Deuteronomy 31.26, we see it referenced as the book of the law. In Psalm 19.17, we see it called the law of the Lord. It's a reference to the scriptures. In Psalm 119, we see scriptures referred to as a lamp. In Psalm 12.6, it's called the words of the Lord. In Luke 11.28, it's called the word of God. In Philippians 2.16, it's called the word of life. And in Acts 7.38, they're called living words. And even in 2 Timothy 3.16, we see it referred to as Scripture. However, in our passage this morning, we see a name for Scripture that I believe to be not only significant, but often overlooked. The Scriptures are referred to as the Word of Truth in verse 15. If we are not careful in rightly dividing this passage, we might just cruise right over the fact that this is a significant and foundational passage in understanding the very nature of Scripture itself. This passage is important for understanding epistemology, which is a fancy term for the study of truth. And there are two questions that we need to ask that will help us understand what truth is. First question is, what is truth? And the second is, how can we know it? The answer to our first question we need to simply Read the passage carefully. What is truth? Well, simply put, it's God's word is truth. And for anyone that might try and push back against this by saying, I mean, maybe you're reading a little too much into this name for scripture that's found here in 2 Timothy, I'll simply point you to the rest of scripture. This is a consistent theme throughout scriptures. 
And we're going to look at some of the uh, listings here. We'll start in the Old Testament. There's too many to list, but I'm just going to give you a few couple quick ones here. Second Samuel 7.28, David says, And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And 1 Kings 17.24, a widow says to Elijah, the prophet that spoke the very words of God, she said, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. In Psalm 119, verses 160, it says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Sum being a mathematical term there. That means the total, the totality of your word is truth. But when studying what truth is, uh, I think there's really no other place to look than the New Testament book of the Gospel of John. And uh, the word truth is used 26 times in the book of John. Second only to the Psalms, but considering the Psalms to be a compilation of various authors from various times, I think it's safe to say that John takes the cake with the most uses of the word truth. So I think it's a foundational book for understanding epistemology. And I think this is significant. A few months back, for my teens that were here, might remember, we were able to go through the book of John and look at all 26 of these instances, and we asked ourselves the question, what is truth and how can we know it? We tried to see if John would answer these questions for us. We're obviously not going to take the time to do that today, but I want to give you just a couple just so we can really hammer down this point. The first one is John 14, 6, in which Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We need to first understand that truth is rooted in the very nature and character of the person of God himself. Jesus doesn't just claim to be the standard for truth, as if truth exists outside of himself but he claims to be truth itself. I am truth is the claim of Jesus to his disciples. And then to answer our second question, how can we know truth? We'll look quickly at John 16, 13 through 15, which says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Notice first the Trinitarian nature of truth. It is rooted in God himself and then revealed by himself as a testimony of himself. The Holy Spirit, which is also known as the Spirit of Truth, will reveal truth to his disciples. Jesus promised to build his church through his disciples. Then he promised to send his spirit to reveal to them the necessary truth for them to build. This has always been the pattern. God is the standard for truth. Then he reveals himself, or you could say he reveals truth, through special means to a servant of his choosing. Then his servant proclaims and records this truth that is accompanied by signs and wonders and as an authentication of the truthfulness of his words. So when we read in our text here this morning in 2 Timothy 2.15, we should understand that when Paul calls Scripture the word of truth, Paul understands what truth is. He understands that God is truth, and he has revealed truth in his word through the Apostle Paul. Having established this, we should know that a denial of God's word is a denial of truth itself. God's word is to be our standard for truth. So when the word of God is denied, 
then, the, then truth itself has been denied. Truth cannot be reasoned to by some other standard. Let's be honest, though. This appears to be foolish to the world around us. And quite frankly, even inside our own camp of professing Christian teachers and pastors, there's a desire to distance oneself from the Word of God. They might say, we shouldn't appeal to the Word of God as a standard of truth if the world rejects that standard. If we want to reach them, we need to appeal to their standards of truth. Or they'd say, let's use their standards of truth to prove to them the resurrection of Christ. We can start with the proclamation, we can't start with the proclamations of the truth from Scripture. We just, we can't just appeal, we need to appeal to their fallen senses. We should appeal to their fallen senses and we should not appeal to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If we do that, that'll just push them away. Or other critics might say, how can you believe something just because it's recorded in a dusty old book? And let's be honest, oftentimes we don't even realize just how affected we are by postmodern thinking that we think we need to appeal to their fallen senses and that we need to use their fallen understanding of general revelation to convince them of the truthfulness of God's special revelation. When we do this, we display our own distrust in the truthfulness of God's word. We deny the power of the gospel that Romans 1 clearly identifies as our means for salvation. The gospel has the power to save because it is true. And it is our job to proclaim truth as faithful ambassadors of God and his revealed truth. Let us not appeal to the wisdom of man to prove the truthfulness of God. Rather, let us proclaim the truth of God and let his word do its work. This is Paul's charge to Timothy. Work hard at handling God's word. Divide it rightly, for in it lies truth. And in order to handle God's word correctly, we need to first know what it is. We've just established that God's word is truth on an epistemological level, but what is it on a more physical level? Well, those with eyes to see, it's a book. And for those of you that are joining us on Wednesday nights in our study in hermeneutics, we've learned just these past couple weeks that the scriptures are many things on a literary level. It's poetry, it's prophecy, it's proverbs, it's narratives and laws and letters of instruction. It's all of these things. And therefore, it must be handled with care so that we use it correctly. We need to interpret it as God intended for us to interpret it. And this is the job that Paul has entrusted to Timothy, to handle God's word correctly. Reading each text in its context, studying it for its intended message, and applying it correctly for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Making sure that we don't read into scriptures things that are not there. In opposition to rightly dividing God's word, we are told in verse 16 to avoid irreverent babble. This is the same word that is used in the end of 1 Timothy 6.20, in which Paul tells Timothy to guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. We see an almost identical structure and charge here from Paul that we are to hold to, truth, to the truth of God's word and avoid teaching that is contradictory. Because it does harm to its hearers. It leads people astray from the truth. And it is extremely contagious. Paul compares this babble that leads to false teaching he compares it to an infectious disease that spreads from one host to another. 
signifying the importance of staying away from it. It is extremely dangerous and easy to fall into. Paul gives an example of this very thing with Hymenaeus and Philetus. He says that by claiming that the resurrection has already happened, that in doing this, they have denied truth. Truth that was handed down to them by the apostles of Christ. Paul had to deal with this resurrection issue with the church of Corinth as well. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 13-14, Paul says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Paul has made it abundantly clear that the resurrection is of first importance. To deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny the resurrection of Christ. This is exactly the kind of false teaching that Paul is urging Timothy to avoid. Notice the connection that is made here. A denial of the truth of God's word, as revealed to the apostles and prophets, through the apostles and prophets, is a denial of the gospel itself. There's a direct connection to the word of God and the gospel itself. God's word must be the foundation for the gospel, and therefore, the gospel cannot be separated from the truth of God's word. In fact, any denial of the word of God almost always leads to a denial of the gospel itself. This is why the job of a pastor is so important. Rightly handling the word is not a charge to be taken lightly. Handling God's word incorrectly has life and death consequences. This has honestly been my biggest beef with what is commonly called the gospel-centered movement. While it is true that the gospel should be central to what we do, we should never forget where the gospel comes from and how it's to be delivered. This sets the standard for how we are to organize every part of our lives, and that's according to the word of God. God's word should be our final foundation for everything, including the gospel message and our instructions for how to deliver it. And my frustration with the gospel-centered model of ministry is first and foremost that it often undermines the fact that scriptures should be our foundation for everything, even our very understanding of truth and the gospel itself. The other issue that I have is that the gospel-centered model of ministry often elevates the importance of the gospel to the point that other scriptural truths are deemed unnecessary, when the reality is, all truth is important. Hymenaeus and Philetus were not denying that Christ died, or that he was buried, or that he rose again. They were just saying that the bodily resurrection of believers had already happened. This is just a secondary issue, right, Paul? Aren't you blowing this out of proportion? Not according to Paul. Paul makes this abundantly clear that a denial of the bodily resurrection of mankind is actually a denial of the gospel itself. This kind of teaching must be rejected. Why? Because it stands in direct contradiction to the truth of God's word as revealed to man through the apostles and prophets in God's unfailing, unchanging word of truth. It's not hard to look at the waves of apostasy that we're seeing amongst Gen Xers and millennials these days and draw a conclusion that a faith that is not grounded in the word of God is not grounded at all. A faith that does not accept the truthfulness of God and his word will fail when trials come. And make no mistake, as the cost for following Christ continues to rise, so will the number of apostates we see. We must hold fast to God and his word. We must understand what truth is and where it comes from. Paul knows this. He knows that suffering is going to increase for Timothy. And he also knows that as it does, 
so will the number of apostates during Timothy's day in the church. And this is his reason for admonishing Timothy to hold fast to truth and warning him to avoid false teaching. And it's also why, after this admonition and warning, he then gives him a reason for hope. In verse 19, Paul reminds Timothy that God's will will not be shaken by anything, not even the persecution of the church or in the number of apostates that will depart. But God's perfect plan for his church cannot be shaken. And then he gives two seals by which we can recognize God's work and then take hope in knowing that he is at work. The first is the statement that the Lord knows those who are his. This is most likely a reference to Korah and Dathan's rebellion from Numbers 16.5, where they rebelled against Moses' authority. After they had assembled against Moses, Moses fell on his face and said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses he will bring near to him. This is to signify that, the, that salvation is the plan of God and that he works as he pleases. His children will be brought near to him no matter the opposition that arises. Just as there was no earthly power that Dathan and Korah could muster up to alter the plan of God, neither is there any reason why we should doubt God's power to redeem his children. He knows his children, and we can trust him to accomplish his work of redemption. The second seal that we see here says, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. After a heart has been truly changed by the gospel, then his behavior will inevitably be changed as well. This is why the book of James says that faith without works is dead. Even though salvation comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ, true faith is never alone. These are the seals by which we can see God's sure foundation for his church at work. About this passage, D. Edmund Hybert says this, To be valid, the two legends on the seal cannot be separated. The first emphasizes the objective fact of God's superintending knowledge of his own. The second stresses the need for man's holiness. The first is dated in eternity past. The second regulates the believer's present conduct. The first assures the security of the church, and the second requires its purity. The first is a truth to be believed. The second is a demand to be obeyed. I think this summarizes succinctly what's happening here. The seals of God's redeeming work is to be our hope. We need not be discouraged when trials come, nor should we fall into despair when those from amongst us abandon the truth of God's word. While this is always difficult to witness, especially when it's a family member or a loved one, we can always take hope in the fact that God's purposes will be accomplished. The ideas from this verse will be expounded as we look at our passage next week, including how we handle those that are in the process of walking away from the faith. But for now, we can find hope that God is still in control of all things. We can take hope that he has left us seals for us to catch glimpses of his word at work. And if we cling to the truth of God's word, prove ourselves to be workmen rightly dividing his word, then we can be encouraged that God will bring the harvest from his word. He knows his children and will protect them. And he has given us all the tools we need to pursue holiness in his word. Let us, as his children, stand on him, 
our firm foundation. Would you please jump close with me as we pray? Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.